Hey there, my name is Mark McCartney and welcome to the What is a Good Life podcast. Over the last three years, I've interviewed nearly 200 people around this question. And if you're new to the podcast, the objective has never been to provide a universal answer, but more so in sharing other people's curiosities, lines of inquiries and exploration of this question that would help you find and define your own answer to this question yourself. Well, I'm also trying to share with you what I perceive to be more genuine expressions of the human experience and more meaningful conversations. Which brings us to this week and the 56th episode of the What is a Good Life podcast. And I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Simon Western as our guest. Simon is the author of Leadership, a Critical Text, founder of both the Eco Leadership Institute and Analytic Network Coaching, and the host of the Edgy Ideas podcast. Simon brings a vast experience with him, given his previous roles include being a general nurse, a psychiatric nurse, family therapist, and psychotherapist. In this episode, Simon shares his journey with his lifelong question of what is a good life for him. From prioritizing freedom to exploring other cultures, politics and music as a teenager, to traveling widely and wandering the deserts and being with his melancholy. He discusses the profound influence that connecting with his grief and sadness has had on his life and his career. We question the influence of modernity on our need to label, measure and put everything in boxes on the quality of our relationships, our sense of dislocation and separation from each other and the natural world we are a part of. Finally, we consider how we might re-enchant our culture once more, whether that is connecting to the soul, re-engaging with mystery or creating more awareness of our interconnections and dependencies. If you're feeling a sense of dislocation in your life or are struggling to feel a sense of aliveness and connection to the world around you, Simon's experiences in life will give you much to contemplate, as well as inspiration to explore areas that you may well be neglecting. Look, I found this conversation to be extremely enlightening, engaging and thoughtful. And I think Simon is someone who is most certainly living a very soulful life. So I'm sure you're going to take a lot from the conversation just like I did. And if you enjoy this conversation, please like, share and subscribe and continue to leave your lovely reviews if you're on the podcasting platforms, as I really appreciate your support at this stage of my podcasting journey. So without further ado, the 56th episode of the What is a Good Life podcast. Simon, thank you very much for joining me today on the What is a Good Life podcast. Uh, as I mentioned to you in our little pre-chat there, uh, I really admire the, the breadth of your work and uh, also the humility of it as well as I, as, a, as I perceive it. So I'm very grateful to have you here today. Good to be here, Mark. So as I tend to kick these things off with, it's with the question of, uh, is there a question you're trying to answer as you move through life? I don't think so. I don't think consciously I've uh, lived with a question in mind and I uh, I counsel people not to kind of uh, follow goals and aims. But when you ask me that, and uh, I've been thinking about it and, and probably the question I've been holding in my mind without it being very conscious is what does it mean to live a good life? I think I've, I've kind of, uh, from a very young age, I've been sort of trying to work that one out and been very curious about it. It's kind of interested me observing other people and, and uh, thinking about kind of what it means. And, you know, you see people going for wealth, you see people going for power, you see people going for success. And I've met many unhappy people who have achieved those things. So that question, I think, has kind of always been around. And like, as you know, my own Edge Ideas podcast asks a similar question. So I'm, I think you and I share a curiosity around what it means to live a good life. Could you kind of chart or give us a sense of how that question has, uh, has evolved for you personally? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I grew up in Bristol in um, a kind of, fair, I grew up in a council house and we kind of uh, moved and I went to a working class school, didn't do very well, got thrown out of school. Um, 
And as a young person, I think my question was, how can I get more freedom? I was like, <laughs> freedom from the tyrannical family, freedom from the <laughs> tyrannical schools. Like, you know, how can I break out of this system? Like, you know, and I, I got very into an anarchy and I got, I, I, I kind of, it's, Bristol was a, a buzzing place in the 1980s. There was lots of anarchists and great music. And uh, so when I left home at the age of sort of 17, 18, I, I, um, I, I got into this alternative culture and Glastonbury Festival was kicking off and there was a lot going on, like, you know, and I, I, I just really was exploring this idea of freedom and, that, and that's kind of uh, was my earliest memories of, of exploring what it means to live a good life and people questioning the sort of the normal, you know. And was that a, just that, that sense of freedom then? Was that like, um, was that freedom when you were sent to break out of somewhere? Was it to go somewhere? Was it, uh, was it a sense of being in the world? How, like, would you, how would you kind of characterize it? Um, both definitely being in the world. It was like, uh, I mean, I, I, I played rugby and I, I, when I was a young person, rugby was my outlet. Rugby was a place where I found some freedom where I could be creative and I could get rid of aggression. And I, and it's one place where kind of, uh, elders would, um, value me. Like at school, I wasn't valued, but these, these fellas said, you're a good Simon. And like, you know, you, you got courage and you got good spirit and, you know, I got good feedback and it was, it was a, an important kind of a place for me to develop. Um, when I, when I turned 18, 1920, I, I was a general nurse and, um, that was really interesting because I discovered a capacity to, uh, be with others in, in a way which is very compassionate. I, a lot of nurses were, were kind of fairly technical and they were good at what they did. Um, I was not very good at the technical side, like, you know, giving out the drugs and stuff, but I was, I was very, um, I was very into like caring for the dying, talking to relatives. I used to get told off by, uh, by ward sisters, strict ward sisters who say, nurse Weston, go and do some work. Stop talking to the patients. <laughs> and I used to think, well, talking to the patients is the work this is the work like you know they, they, these people are sort of dying they're suffering they're you know they need they need compassion and uh so i, I went on to study psychiatric nursing which allowed me to kind of um do, do more of the kind of a uh, compassionate piece but it was um it was uh the hospital was kind of a run in a quasi-military way it's like your matron your sisters it was you know it's kind of strict and it's uniforms and stuff you know so there's, there's these structures there but within that structure i found some freedom and Outside that structure, I found great freedom. I mean, I was, like I say, I was going to all these alternative gigs and, you know, I was discovering, I grew up in a fairly all white culture and then I, I go downtown Bristol to St. Paul's and it was kind of Caribbean culture and, um, yeah, punk culture mixed in with that. And it was like just, just really kind of vibrant time and it was really energizing and people were questioning politics. Or, you know, I was, lear I was learning about kind of racism. I was learning about politics, things I... Um, I hadn't come across before and it was really sort of, uh, engaging. Yeah. Just, just, I felt like I was alive and you asked about travel and I started to travel then as well. So I, 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 I've traveled like different cultures really interested me. Like, you know, I was hitchhiking everywhere, including to the West of Ireland where I've ended up living, but I, I'd go, you know, I'd go to Israel on my own quite often. I just go away and I, I go and kind of wander in the desert for a while. And I, I just do, do kind of these, big kind of a travels and um yeah i was just really enjoying being curious about the world and discovering you know an aliveness in in this space 
I love uh, I'd love I'd love to touch more on the the sense of aliveness, but just um, the mention there of the wandering the desert. Could you could you let me know what that entailed? Yeah, I mean, I'm when I was when I was five years old, my brother Stephen died of leukemia. He was seven years old, and um, it smashed my family to bits. Like you know, I mean, my dad had a breakdown, and and uh, it made. When you're young, you don't really make sense of it. But when I was kind of 18 and 19, I was I was I was a bit of a party animal, and I had all these friends, and it was really kind of like I was really enjoying life. You know, I had a good job, but the nursing was interesting. But I used to go off on my own, and people could make sense of it. And I and they say, "What are you doing?" And I'd say, "You've got to go and discover your men, your melancholy. You've got to be with your melancholy." I said, "I used to say this without really knowing what I was saying." Like you know, and I, I think. Looking back on it, it was like, you know, I understood what loss meant at a young age. And I, I kind of knew that part of me had to be kind of part of the way I lived. It was like, you know, you couldn't kind of just cut that off and and be away from it. So when I used to go traveling on my own, I, I used to sort of just, I remember going to Israel and I rocked up and I found this mad German guy who was like uh, really funny. And we um, we hitchhiked around Israel, went to all the kind of major sites. And then I went down to Sinai Desert and kind of stayed with the Bedouin and stuff and just wandered around. And I was just blown away by the beauty, by the stars, by the space. Um, and I get in touch with my melancholy. I kind of, I, I get into a place where you'd feel like this. Uh, I think I got in touch with grief. I didn't call it grief at the time. I think I, I got in touch with loss and grief. Um, and it made me feel whole. It kind of made me feel like, once I'd done that, I kind of felt I felt better. I felt more re-engaged. It's quite hard to be there and, and face that. But once I kind of been in touch with that, I realized that kind of something changed within me. And I, I, I yeah, I, I could live again or I could engage again in a different way. But if I didn't do that, then I, I get manic and I get in kind of crazy kind of spaces. But I wouldn't feel happy. You know, I wouldn't feel content. That uh, that expression "be with your melancholy" is one of the most beautiful things I've heard. Um, for you, like apart from even just the solitude and what you're talking about there, even in like in whether it's engaging with the stars or 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 even if it was a vast space, um, what what would kind of being with your melancholy, even at that stage, even if you weren't calling it grief at the time, what it, like what would that kind of feel like or look like? it's sadness it's like you know it's sadness but it's not depression it's interesting um you know different times of my life i've touched on depression i haven't really been depressed but I, i've kind of got gone in that direction and that's a different kind of feeling my melancholy is something about sadness is about holding sadness in, in part of me there's a lot of positive psychology there's a lot of people pushing being positive you know i, I write about the happiness imperative how we're supposed to be happy all the time and I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's not the way to live, you know. <laughs> you know, you've got to be in touch with your sadness as well. You know, to be a whole person, to kind of um, to to be alive is to kind of uh, have a whole range of emotions, and that would include anger and sadness and love. And but sadness for me is an important one, and it's um, it's been a big part of my life. Like you know, I, I worked, my work has been psychiatric nursing, general nursing. Um, Working with people suffering, you know, family therapy, working with people suffering a lot. And uh, and I've had the capacity to work in that space where I can hold other people's sadness without running away from it, without it frightening me, without kind of like uh, trying to make it better for them, just being there with them, you know. And that's been like really important for others. And uh, 
Yeah, so I think it's a capacity I developed. I just think it's really important that you know that that part of me is um, is is who I am. Like you know, it's part of who I am. I, I live with sadness. I've lived with a lot of loss in my life since my brother and and, and more recently. But um, having a capacity to hold sadness uh, and not be in flight from it is really important. I think. I think when when anyone does have that capacity, I think it automatically helps other people feel more comfortable or more willing to hold their own sadness as well. Like I think sometimes even around um, around sadness, when it's almost in how other people react sometimes to our sadness, like it affects our relationship with it so much as well. It does, and it's um, and it's at the moment in in society, it's very countercultural. Like we don't we don't go there, you know. We post all the nice stuff on on our social media. We kind of like, you know, we're driven to be positive, and there's all these, yeah, all this kind of social pressure to kind of uh, be positive and to and 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 there, there, there's not a kind of a space, you know, an institutional space for it. You know, people stop going to church and. Uh, those kind of sacred spaces which were built into our, our rhythms of life are, are no longer. So people kind of really struggle with it and they don't know how to do it. They, they're, they're not used to it. And it's, when you're not used to it and you don't know how to do it, it's actually quite frightening. You know, you can feel overwhelmed by it. So to have someone there who's not frightened by it and can just be, be in that space is, is vital. But um, I think we all have to learn a bit about that. I, I think if, for me in, in, let's say even in a relationship with sadness, uh, I, I read something once that I, that really resonated uh, was by Carl Jung, something like the extent of the, for the trees of the, for the branches of the trees to reach heaven, its roots have to go down to, to hell. And there's something about, I think, even our relationship with just holding the, holding the, the capacity to hold sadness even affects our ability to, you know, some of these other things you're talking about, like to help us feel alive, to help us feel, love or or even happiness and you know in whatever fleeting sense that's possible at times as well yeah totally i i think they're totally interconnected and people kind of split them off and, and when you get when you split off sadness and melancholy um and, and you don't grieve properly when you've lost somebody or something it affects how you live like you know and and like you can see it on an individual level and collectively when, when a country doesn't doesn't actually recognize its losses it can turn on people you know you get kind of like it turns into anger or it turns into something else and it doesn't go away this this kind of uh this residue of sadness becomes kind of fear or anger or something else and and it gets projected onto an immigrant group or an outside group or something you know and uh you see it a lot so i think this capacity to sort of uh say this is actually quite quite normal actually it's quite healthy and actually it, it kind of it is part of life and you'll live a much fuller life you will live a good life if you can kind of hold that as part of your experience because it will be we don't we all kind of suffer losses we all suffer kind of uh some grief in our life some some kind of uh disappointments you know this is this is part of uh you know if you're going to be successful you, you're going to go through quite a lot of disappointments on the, on the way you know if you're going to take risks you're going to fail quite a lot so that you know th these experiences should be part of of our kind of a holistic kind of a way of being i think I listened to something by um, uh, Francis Weller uh, earlier today. He's, um, he's from that uh, kind of Jungian tree of Hillman um, and other people like this and talks a lot about soul. And he was talking about these, almost these different stages of grief in, in the sense of like, usually when we think of grief, we think about someone losing something or somebody or something that they really love. But it's even in 
like even addressing the the lost opportunities or even the the parts of ourselves that we almost disown because they they were deemed as not acceptable by somebody else and I know when I think about here that and then I think of what you're saying about sadness here as well or being with your melancholy there's something about this like when we and this positive psychology stuff and there's value and merits and lots of things but just in the sense of like disowning then as you say like what we could be sad about it generally leads to rebounding back or something yeah. in some form of anger yeah i mean i i train in psychoanalysis and we talk about a return of the repressed and it, it does return it, it it will if you don't kind of uh process something it does return and it returns in a very dysfunctional way we're not quite sure how it can and, and for each of us it will be different but it will return you know and, and like and individually um in families and in and in uh and in nation states and stuff, you know, the return of the past you can see happening over and over again, you know. Just uh, interested when you said, uh, you know, in your in your role with nursing that you, you, you naturally had this innate sense of showing compassion or seeing that the compassion existed just not in, let's say, the wound that was being addressed, but the, the people's experience um, around that. Was that something innate in you or was that, like, how did you kind of see that, that forming? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I'm I'm quite different from a lot of my peer group. You know, like I I'm different in many ways. I I, I grew up with a sort of fairly macho peer group who lived in a certain kind of way. And uh, I don't know. I mean, my mother had a big influence on me. She was um, she came from a very poor background, and she made her way through life and uh, became a a teacher and then ran a beautiful school for multiracial kids in, in multicultural kids in Bristol, a really lovely space. And that, that you know, it's kind of quite inspiring to see what she'd achieved. So I think I got quite a lot from her, but, um, yeah. And I think I, I grew up in a family of four boys and I think I was my mother's daughter in lots of ways. Cause I, I was, uh, I was, uh, the emotionally, um, intelligent one, <laughs> the, the one she talked to most. And you know, as, as, you know, as I grew into an adult, I'd share stuff with her and we talk at a, a very emotional level. And, you know, I became a nurse, you know, kind of a man in a female profession. And um, then I became a therapist and, you know, things often associated with kind of uh, women. I, I took on, I love cooking, and you know, which is interesting because I'm also kind of quite macho. I was a rugby player as well. And I was like, you know, but I, I wasn't afraid of, uh, of uh, expressing feelings or, or being in touch with feelings. So, something happened and um and i I've, I've worked around in in female circles quite a lot and, and maybe that kind of rubbed off on me from a young age because you know as a nurse i was like one in the class of 30 i think it's two men and 30 women in in, in our in our cohort of, of uh, student nurses so some, something i picked up something i think what do you think uh i know you're mentioning like a like a, lots of things like anarchy and, and this sort of stuff and and uh you know the different uh, cultures that were available to you and the interests you had in different uh, in in uh, in different settings, but just even uh, like allowing yourself to to be the two one of two in a in a class of thirty, like did that come easy to you, or did, like was that even a decision to be made, or was that just quite straightforward for yourself? For myself, it was kind of fairly straightforward. I mean, I I worked in a factory before, and I needed to get out of the factory, and someone said. I never thought about being a nurse. Someone said, Simon, uh, you know, you need to get your act together. You're better than this. Like, you know, 
this is at a rugby club and uh, you know my, my wife's a nurse and she said they're looking for male nurses so um, you know and I, I had to go to like Eden school and get a couple more O levels and study a bit but um, I did that and it was like uh, it just sounded interesting working with people sounded better than working in a factory making paper bags you know it's like uh, <laughs> that was like the initial choice um, I didn't I was quite naive like I sort of went into it and I, I wasn't that intimidated but it wasn't easy when I got there. I mean, there was quite a lot of uh, discrimination. I wasn't allowed to work on female wards. I wasn't allowed to sit in lectures on female anatomy. Um, the, there was some, I mean, there's, these days it would be called abuse, but you know, we, like some of the sisters would ask me to sit on their knee when they wrote reports and they give me a bad report if I didn't sit on their knee. I was this young, handsome rugby player sort of there. So you, you got projections of uh, like, um, yeah, idealization of, of being a special kind of man. And you also got punished for it. Like, you know, I had to carry all the heavy patients and people kind of really didn't like, you know, you're in the wrong profession. And then from my male friends, you know, I got a lot of, you know, people call me gay and stuff, you know, because I was a nurse, you get kind of um, taunted a bit, you know, which didn't, I don't know, I got quite a thick skin. That didn't seem to bother me um, uh, too much, but um yeah, it's quite a journey. I, it was really powerful because I use it now. It's, it's really useful to me to empathize with other people who are in minority groups. You know, you, you've had that experience and you're, and you're othered. You're, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm different to everyone else. And uh, what does that mean? And it's been, um, it's been very helpful, actually, to kind of uh, go through that experience and, and uh, yeah, understand what it's like to be othered. And I, I repeated it again in my um, when I was twenty five, twenty six. I I had a child, and um, I separated from his mother. We we co parented, um, but she went back to work, and I I was uh, I, I was a stay at home dad for four years, and absolutely loved it. At the age of twenty six, I had sort of a punk haircut and I had this baby with me, and I was like. Um, <laughs> one of the best times of my life to be I thought I'd get bored after six months being home, but I was like probably one of the happiest times of my life. And but I'd rock up to a mother and toddler group and uh, they'd look at you like and like half the group would want to mother you and the other half would kind of want to expel you for intruding <laughs> into their space. It's like it was really quite weird. Like, you know, but that experience would be another I I I um it's not all negative. There's something kind of interesting about it. I I I, I like difference. I like diversity. I like uh yeah. I feel happy when I go, I go, I mean, when I went to London, I went to the down in Terra Hamlets and like, it was like about 80% Bangladeshi community around me. And I loved it. I kind of lo loved kind of just being in that, in that space. And so there's something about difference. I really enjoy. What, just, what, what is it about uh, difference? Like what, cause that, that is quite stark, isn't it? Like some of the examples you've given there yeah. um, of some of the situations you put yourself in. I mean, I just find it more interesting. I mean, I like my, my biggest kind of, I'm really quite afraid of uh, homogenization of sort of kind of like, you know, I, I got friends who live in kind of all white areas and stuff. And uh, like one of my troubles, I, I went to Poland. I enjoyed living in Poland, except it was like, uh, it was lacked multiculturalism. It was like, you know, it was, it was a white space. And uh, I really missed it. I really missed that diversity, you know, I was in London last week and I just buzz off it. Like I just buzz off like the, you know, the variety of food, the kind of choices you have, the kind of the colors, the smells, the culture, you know, and that's from high culture. I go to the opera and I go to kind of like down, down brick lane. That's where I used to live and there are hamlets and hang out in, in the cafes. And 
it's um i just that just enriches my life and i just think it's you know i just feel enriched by it and and if i go to i'm quite afraid of fearful of uh totalizing cultures when i when i was a psychiatric nurse i worked in an old-fashioned uh asylum literally just before the asylums closed there was this big move to um put psychiatric patients back into the community but before that, it's like two or three years before they, they closed these big Victorian asylums built on the edge. This is on the edge of York, big walls around it, big fields and a massive kind of institution. And I experienced uh, what's called a, a total institution where, where you had to be institutionalized to kind of live and work there. And that wasn't just a patient, it was a staff. They kind of lived in staff houses and they lived and it was really kind of quite yeah, that kind of conformity kind of scares me, really kind of like makes me feel uncomfortable. And when I go into organizations as a consultant now, I mean, I remember going into one of the big banks in Canary Wharf, I was a consultant and I was invited to speak to on leadership to kind of 40 of their kind of uh, senior managers. And after my talk, they said, one of them said, you know, you've come from the public sector, you were a nurse and you were like a family therapist and a clinical manager. Usually it's a private sector teaching the public sector. What can you teach us? And I said, well, the first thing comes to mind is, is, uh, is the asylum I worked in. You know, when I walked into your offices, there's like 300 people all dressed in black suits, men and women, like, you know, all sat at the same desk. And it scared me to death because I, you know, I get this. So like, <laughs> it reminds me of the institution, like, you know, it's like, it's like you know, and, and they're all kind of a bit shocked, you know, but it's like, it's a wake up call. You get this kind of conformist mindset in, in some of the big corporations and, and, and it is kind of scary. For me, it's scary. It's sort of like, you know, these kind of conformist mindsets lead you to bad things. You know, if you don't question things, if you don't have that, that, that space to sort of be discerning and to question things, you know, fascism's not far down the road. You know, it's sort of, uh, it leads you into these sort of uh, unquestioning sort of states of mind which lead to bad things. So there's something kind of uh, disturbed me about that. And, and I think that's why I really like, and it feeds my curiosity. I'm a very curious person. So diversity feeds my curiosity. But isn't that, um, the, there's something though, I think even in the own individual's satisfaction in life, because um, there, there's something when things do become, like it's so conformist that it's, not that it becomes um, so dogmatic or whatever, but it's just, people just stop seeing certain things. Yeah. Like I, I, I very much agree with your, you know, before I, I moved to Berlin, I'd also spent a year in, in the countryside in Peru and, and just even some places or even been in India for a number of months, a few years before. And, and I, I don't know, like it's, it's not until you, you experience some difference that you just realized how, how, how much it impairs your ability to see more of the world. Like, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I don't have some 360 degree view because I've spent some time in, in certain places, but just it at least makes you aware of your own ignorance, which yeah. I think even for the own, the individual's own journey through life, then just to be humbled by your own ignorance is a, is a wonderful thing as well. Yeah. And it, and it awakens you to your own experience. It's not just ignorance. It's like, you know, if you go uh, to a, a foreign country, a different place, experience difference, you know, 
you, you become a reflective being because you ask you ask questions about yourself, you know. Well, why is that normal in my culture and not in their culture? You know? what, and, and, you, and you start thinking about your own culture and, and, and it raises questions about how you live and, and what you do. You know, it kind of like, it's up there in your face. You've got no choice but to ask those questions because you're sort of saying, you know, how is that different? You know, don't, you know what, what are they doing there? And it's, it, it's, for me, that's like, you know, this idea about being reflective and kind of uh, reflecting on, on who you are, how you live, you know, you know, how you live with others is like really important and and you know if you just live in a conformist society you don't do that you just kind of follow the rules and 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 you go along with things you know someone else tells you what to do you know it reminds me um i remember i forget who it was he was studying uh some uh some tribes and he was talking about how you know in western society we may view this as suspicious or superstitious and mad and everything else and he was saying but like how can you possibly explain to someone not from your culture that it's rude to leave your hat on while eating at dinner <laughs> yeah <laughs> do, right. do you know what i mean like yeah, it's yeah. it's amazing just how everything that you think is normal is it's all a bit like it's all a bit of a construct it's all a bit mad like you know it is you know when, when i work in organizations as a consultant and stuff and one of the things uh, we, we we did was was do these leadership exchanges and we'd, we'd pick people from like the united nations or they work in uh in the red cross and we'd, we'd swap them with someone who, who kind of um we'd get them to visit someone who worked in a bank and then we get the person from the bank to go and visit them in in Africa in the Red Cross, you know. And these exchanges, it'd be part of a master's program. And people said that these exchanges were the most powerful learning experience they had. All the other, they had all the great professors stuff teaching them. But it was these experiences where you get someone from a different culture looking at you, giving you feedback, and making you think about your own practice. You know, these were the richest experiences they had. Like you know, and it, it, it kind of. Uh, so we, we kind of use that that idea of difference as a way of learning and it's um it's really powerful it really awakens you well uh obviously the way you're talking about even difference and how that uh, it ties in with your own curiosity um almost maybe that uh, even predisposes you to just uh, embracing difference how, how do you see it then even if it was on a on an organizational or societal level whatever it may be what do you kind of see the the both the biggest obstacles, but also the easiest kind of not wins, but something along that way that we it, it may be easier to to appreciate the difference than than we currently see. I mean, we're we're entering strange times where where because of all the uh, kind of fish bowls in social media, people get less and less difference. There's, there's more and more kind of difference out there, all these diverse groups, but they don't talk to each other anymore. So you, you join your own little club on, on, on one of the social media platforms and you kind of, uh, people share your views, whether that's political or, or um, identity politics or kind of like, or whatever, like, you know, or, or special interest groups. So we, 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 we're entering into kind of quite dangerous, strange times where we all kind of uh, have, have our own views re reaffirmed and uh, by, by others who are like us. It's um, it's more and more divisive. It's um, it's kind of concerning, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I like nearly all my work, my podcast, my stuff. It is about kind of uh, making connections and realizing interdependencies with each other, with nature. Um, that's kind of at the heart of my work. I, I talk about this thing called eco leadership, and it's about understanding that we're part of ecosystems. And these ecosystems are about people, about diversity. They're about kind of nature. They're about technology as well. We live in a world of technology. How do these things come together? And it's um, 
and it's a, a really big shift to kind of uh, start thinking in this interconnected way. And that's kind of uh, what I do in my work to really try and make these connections and, and, and share diverse experiences and ideas. And, you know, I, I teach a course and I give two free places to, to people from Iran who want to come on, like, you know, they haven't got um, their economies crashed now, but no, come on, because, you know, you, you add value just by being from Iran. Like, you know, we, we want to hear kind yeah. of, you know, what, what, what's going on, you know. Uh, so, so that's what my work is really at the moment. And even from the like a an elaboration on the the sense of inter interdependency, like what what you see is kind of the most I don't know basic or common sense thing as to how you perceive the world that you don't think is a, like is a message of that that the rest of let's say wider society may be adopting. I think I mean I think we 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 we're entrapped in. Uh modernity's way of thinking and modernity's way of thinking is to is all about um rationality division like you know that like in the modern world in the pre-modern world the world was enchanted lots of spirit life and spirit stuff and people kind of that was both a good and a bad thing because you're out of control and, and like you know you could get some some kind of a shaman who kind of say, you know, you've got the devil in you, Simon, and, you know, because I might have some sort of mental illness. And, and, you know, there's a negative side to that. But there's also kind of an enchantment of, of um, the material world around us, the stones, the rocks, the people, everything has a kind of a spirit life and you feel connected. You're all interdependent and connected. Modernity kind of crashed that. It kind of um, crashed it big time. And in some ways that liberated us because we weren't um, condemned to, yeah, kind of the spirits kind of controlling our lives but it also separated us from nature from each other and you know we started to categorize everything everything had to be put in a little box and named and kind of reductionist science took place and we're really trapped in that way of thinking we're completely trapped in it and um you know we've all been brought up with it all around us you know and we think that that's the normal way of being and we've lost this capacity to kind of understand that we're so interdependent with the planet, with the nature, with each other, you know, that there is no kind of like clear boundary between us. Um, and, and that's kind of the, the biggest thing I'm working on at the moment is trying to get people to shift into that space. And, and it's, a, it's difficult because we're so conditioned to be in the other space. It's, um, it's, it's fa- like, uh, I'm reading, uh, Anam Cara by John O'Donoghue at the moment. And, uh, just the, you made me smile almost there with the myth and the enchantment, like, you know, I'm sure living in the West of Ireland, you you probably can see the capacity for yeah. us to, to get too carried away. But there is something really beautiful about the, you know, our intertwining with the landscape, um, our attributing aliveness to, to things that we almost think are inanimate objects. Mm. Um, because then we end up, tri- I, I think at that the more we get used to kind of categorizing or labeling other other things other than that are completely other or separate to us, the more we're even capable of doing it to humans as well. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean that's exactly right. It's not it's not some sort of a fantasy world we're entering. It's actually how we treat each other. It's like it comes down to how how we treat each other, you know. And like, it's it's, it's no coincidence that you know that. Uh, you know, Donald Trump and others want to build walls all the time. You know, I, I wrote a paper recently on on kind of uh, borders and walls and, and stuff, you know, and, and 
like you know this is like a modernity mindset you know if we build a wall around america we can be safe and we can like well no you can't actually because the planet's still burning and like you still need to do global trade and like you know and yeah, you, yeah. Can't, you know you, you you can't kind of uh it doesn't work like that you know and you know it, it's scary you know if you go to south africa i went to south africa a couple of years ago and uh you go to Joe Berg and you see their gated communities and it's like a dystopian view of the future. You see houses with barbed wire around and guards at every gate. And it's like, you know, and you're scared to wind your window down with traffic lights and stuff, you know, and you might be wealthy, but you live in this, you live in this prison world, you know, it's like living in, living in a prison. Yeah. You know? and, and, and that's, you know, unless we learn to live with each other and with nature, like, you know, this is the future. It's, um, and there's a, there's a real joy and, uh, there's a joy one gets, you know, we talk about living a good life. There's a real joy one gets of belonging, belonging to a place, belonging to a community, belonging to a global community. Um, and there's this, if you don't belong, you're kind of detached. You, you kind of, you, you're a bit aimless and you're a bit, there's a lot of people I experience who are successful, um, but they're dislocated. I call them dislocated. They're dislocated. They, they, they can't locate themselves, you know, they're not completely lost around. I think they did have quite good lives and they're, they're doing okay. But when they come into my coaching couch and they, they, they undergo the coaching confessional, as I call it, they, they, <laughs> they start spilling the beans of what's really going on in their lives. You know, it just kind of happens. You know, there, there's this feeling of dislocation. They can't quite find purpose in their lives. They, 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 they don't kind of feel enriched by life. You know, there's a, there's a kind of an emptiness, you know, they've got all this success, but there's an emptiness and it's sort of dislocation, I think, which is um this, this, feeling of being cut off from kind of uh, all those things around us. Do you know, it, it makes me think like we mentioned, you mentioned the world uh, aliveness earlier, but then also just right there, like the sense of, like I think two of the highest things I'd kind of value would be a sense of aliveness in my life, whether I'm <laughs> I'm stressed as long as I'm doing something that I think is meaningful or something, I, you know, you handle the stress um, or you, that's kind of, that can be part of it. But also a sense of belonging in our own life. Like if I were to say something that makes me feel like I'm having a good life. And and I, I don't know, I think that there's, you know, you're touching on nature or two, nature's a really powerful thing in both of those things. I find if I spend enough time engaging with it, just to, whether it's even just to, I think we almost naturally, we don't have to be taught how to be in nature. If we just sit in nature, like a, a natural process takes place maybe yeah. of remembering or reconciliation or, or something along those yeah. lines. Yeah, no, I agree. It's like, it's always been a massive part of my life. And um, you know, every day, I mean, I, I live close to the sea. So every day I go to the sea three times a day, probably I'll take the dog for a walk, go for my bike, you know, it's sort of, I'm in Galway and it's, I chose to live here um, partly because of that, you know, it's like I was in London and I love London. I just kind of real buzz of diversity and stuff, but I miss that, you know, I miss, I miss that kind of closeness to, to nature and uh, it's been really, really important, yeah. With regards just how you're describing even, let's say, some clients there that seem to be, you know, doing reasonably well and, and you know, their life may not be in chaos, but there's a dislocation. Like, is this, like, and you mentioned even earlier, just uh, like sacred spaces that we no longer have, be it, um, you know, it would have been maybe fulfilled by church uh, before. Like, is this dislocation? Are you are we alluding or pointing even to a sense of like, like soul or spirit or um, I know integration or interdependency, but how do you see that kind of uh, that kind of like play itself out? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm quite a spiritual person and I um 
I think sacred spaces are kind of vital. For, I, I think the word soul is important. And I'm not, a, I, I don't preach my faith, you know, I, I don't kind of like go out there and try and evangelize kind of like, and I don't actually have a kind of very specific, you know, when, when people ask me kind of what I believe is kind of a bit muddled, my answer is because I, it's, it's all a mystery, like, you know, so if it's, a mystery, <laughs> if it's a mystery, you try and rationalize it, it doesn't make any sense. So I get, you know, it's like, you know, but I do have a very strong faith and it's taken me, um, through some very difficult times and it's kind of important in my everyday life, you know, so it's, uh, but I talk about soul a lot. I, I talk about the spirit a lot. And I, I say, you know, don't worry if you're an atheist, don't worry if you're a humanist, like, you know, don't get caught up in this idea that it has to be kind of like, you know, some Christian God or some kind of other, other God, you know, forget about that. You still got a soul, you know, you still believe in the human spirit. You still kind of uh, can be soulful. Think about soul music, soul food, you know, you can still kind of like, you know, I don't care what you call it, you know, but get in touch with it, you know, find, find, find kind of a, find something within you and, and work it because, you know, modern society is a very secular society. And it's, um, again, it's, you know, erased that kind of spirit world. You know, I think the greatest challenge for us, I mean, I'm, I'm on the front of my website, I've got re-enchanting organizations as a kind of just, I think we live in a disenchanted world and this, this kind of mm. lostness is, is about disenchantment and it's part of modernity's condition and we've lost connection with nature. We've lost connection with each other. We've lost connection with ourselves, you know, and I think it's a, this, this kind of, yeah, finding our soul, finding ourselves is, is vital, really. This kind of re-enchantment is necessary. You know, as someone uh, who can't evangelize either with a, probably a similar, uh, not the same, but a, <laughs> I'd call my, my views in a divinity or God quite muddled or, or whatever else, uh, and quite personal, I guess, mm. um, how how would you even kind of propose we we re-enchant this i love i love this uh this sense of re-enchantment um how would you even kind of suggest people begin that process yeah well it's it's a, i think it's going to be my preoccupation i'm pretty busy with work but i want to write a book on it so i'm i'm trying to organize my thoughts um they're a bit incoherent at the moment. part of it is definitely about reconnecting and and rediscovering our interdependencies you know like when i used to kind of think about being an anarchist it's all about all about kind of being autonomous and, and and not being governed by somebody else and i still value that like i still value like being independent autonomous way of thinking but and i don't want to be dependent um on others but i do want to recognize my interdependence on others you know there's no me without others. There never has been like, you know, and, and, and re recovering that sense of interdependence with nature, with other people, with other societies, you know, we're all in this together. And it's, I think this is really, really important. And actually uh, it's not a negative. It's very enriching. It's hugely enriching. Like once you start experiencing the world and otherness as a, as a richness, um, sometimes frightening, sometimes it can be a bit overwhelming, you know, it, it's not always easy. But once you start um, creating that kind of mindset, then your soul grows a bit, you know, there, there's growth in that. You know, once we reach out to the other, once we kind of, you know, we, we had a couple of U Ukrainians living with us uh, for over a year and, uh, you know, it's not easy to have people living in your house. Um, you know, I've got a young family as well. But it's very enriching. You no, know, it, it, it's, it's 
that that kind of experience is um important and 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 it puts you in touch with you know that's a real war going on it's not something you see on the news you know that their families are still there that there's something kind of very you know you're engaged in something you feel more you feel sad but you also feel kind of alive because you're kind of engaged and 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 you're 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 doing something um same with nature you know being part of it so there's i think this is kind of a starting point for me to re-enchant the world is to kind of open ourselves up to realize our interdependence and, and our connection to the other whether that's human or whether that's kind of uh the natural world you know but actually sort of getting in touch with it then i think that you know it's a starting place at least there's something about the the word soul or concepts of, of soul that i think points to something more communal beyond the kind of individual self-development self-improvement kind of shtick that we have going on which i think once again like there's almost like even in in how let's say certain themes become a bit more um, mainstream like maybe spiritual practices or whatever there's almost like a spiritual aggression though to how we're adopting spiritual practices and and it goes again to this almost like reductive linear way of thinking that if well if i meditate uh, simon for x amount i can expect you know this level of gratitude or this level of uh, understanding or empathy in my life and and i think there's something to all of this where it's just engaging more with the the unknown or the unpredictability of life because it's in those places we're not putting so many labels on each other because we're both admitting we (laughs) you know when you said about even your your own uh, belief uh, or faith it's 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 a mystery you you know and i think even just bringing that a a commonly acknowledged mystery back into life because that's we live in a universe with you know 95 percent dark energy and dark matter like it's not just a a cute little idea it's the truth like we don't there's so much we don't know yeah and that's you know that's another part of it is, is um embracing mystery embracing ambiguity like not having to know everything not having to kind of like you know like modernity makes us value science and knowledge and like you know um like you say we we actually live in a quite a narcissistic culture you know it is like you know be be true to yourself love yourself you know uh go through your personal growth and like you know um you still feel empty at the end of it because you're kind of you, you're you not connected with others you, you're not kind of uh, you're not locating yourself in place you you're not you know, there, there's there's uh, so some interesting. Another thing I I, I do a lot and, and have done in the past is walk a lot. You know, like walking. Right. And uh, Gary Snyder, uh, an environmentalist author, can he he writes about you can't you don't know a place until you've walked it. And he kind of went. You know, I walk from John O'Groats to kind of Lands End. You know, I bicycled a bit in between, but it's like I know my country. You know, I came from England. I know my country, and I've walked coast to coast the other way you know i know what it feels like and it smells like and and the pace of it and and, and there's something about knowing a place through being in a place you know this this dislocation from place is important as well you know um yeah and the idea of home i think the idea is ho- i'm struck on the idea of home at the moment it's another if we had a longer podcast we could we could uh, drift in, in, into that one you know there's a lot of homeless people you know there's people kind of living insecure in ireland they they can't find their homes they're in rented accommodation or they're you know they're not, not just on the streets but there's many many more in temporary accommodation rented accommodation you know there's immigrants coming in and they've lost their homes and how can we kind of help them find home without a home you're you're in a difficult place it's hard to be located it's hard to be connected it's hard to kind of yeah ground yourself 
Yeah, well, as you say, that that could uh, that could definitely be a, a, a quite an expansive tangent. Um, and just looking at the the time, Simon, and just as I do finish, I know the the question you've been answering is what is a good life, essentially. Um, you know, you've been touching on the idea of freedom and even courage, spirit, um, the idea of compassion for others, and um, community, difference, uh, soul, spirit, uh, interdependence. Um, you know, even the idea of sacred spaces and and kind of moving away maybe from this narcissistic or self-obsessed thing, but also this reductive uh, measurement of modernity at times. Um, so many, so many kind of fascinating themes, which I, I could, exp- I'd love to expand on with you in a number of them. But just as I, as I tend to finish these uh, conver- uh, conversations and discussions, Simon, it's with the question of, uh, of what is a good life for you? I mean, a good life for me is to uh, live with a full range of emotions, to embrace sadness and love and happiness and anger and to have a home, to feel I have a place in the world and to be connected to others, to connected to loved ones, connected to strangers, connected to nature, to realize my interdependence. That's uh, that's beautifully put. Look, Simon, thank you so much for joining us here on the on the What Is a Good Life podcast today. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed all the perspectives that you've shared, and uh, I'm very grateful for your time. It's been a pleasure, Mark. Nice talking with you. Go well.